massive stage disruption this morning. Everybody leaving and moving. So uh, find your seats, get your peanuts out, whatever you do for a, for a minute. Uh, first Samuel 9, I made Teddy read all the words I didn't know how to pronounce. So uh, I don't have to read that portion of the scripture this morning, which is awesome. First uh, Samuel 9. We, uh, we're going to get a hot start this morning because we've got a lot to consider. Uh, we're going to attempt to go all the way through chapter 10, verse 16. Uh, so 1 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1 through 10, 16. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll use this little stream uh, to help us out as well. Uh, actually, with your eyes to drift back to 1 Samuel 8 uh, as we get, uh, get started this morning. 1 Samuel 8, verse 20 is something of a summary statement uh, for us, and I wanted to frame what we're going to do in chapters uh, 9 and 10. I, I mean, there's not much that we're really crushing it at as a culture right now, does it seem like? Um, but one thing we're doing incredibly well is uh, creating uh, clear categories and buckets for people that cause them to fight against people that are different than them. Crushing that. Categorizing people, setting up one person and group all from another, putting labels and causing disunity and clear um, rivalry and fights. The Bible actually spends far more time discussing the things that unite humanity than it does the things that separate humanity. In fact, the Bible starts this way, saying that all people are made and created in the image of God, given inherent worth and value. All cultures, all, all people, all skin types, all political affinities, we all, in some manner, are representative of the image of God. And this unity thread continues after sin enters the world. In our sinfulness, we see clear categories that unite us. And one of those is the language that's used in 820. Let's see if this works. Yeah, all right, so this is 820. This is the language that Israel is using uh, to, to ask for a king. They say, we want someone, we want a king who will judge us, who will go before us, and who will fight our battles. Now, we're stepping into a story that's a bit culturally different. We're not asking for kings. But the basis for this request is eerily similar to the path that we all choose in our sinfulness. We're united with all peoples in looking for these things. Someone or something that's going to do this. Let's see if my, my marker, somebody who will, will judge us. So we could, could put, a, put a term. We want justice. We want someone or something that can give us some understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Somebody, secondly, who will go out before us. We want a leader. We want someone or something that's going to provide leadership for our lives. Someone or something that's going to tell us what's right and wrong. Someone in some, or something that's going to lead us, that's going to move us in the right direction. And then this last phrase, somebody that's going to fight our battles. Security. We want to know we're safe. We want to know we're secure. We want to know we're protected, particularly from the, uh, the evils that we know are going to assail us in culture. Leadership, uh, security, and justice. What differentiates people, all of you in the room, myself included, is not whether or not we look for these three things, but in what we hope to accomplish these things. For most of us, there are common patterns. People, jobs, money, career, distractions, addictions, the list could go on and on. Social action, political activism. 
Many of the things that we look for to provide these sources of hope are not inherently evil, but they're nonetheless a flimsy source for lasting hope and fulfillment. The evolution of the kingdom in Israel provides us as readers a front row seat to see what happens when we clamor for these things in unhelpful and unhealthy ways. What are the opportunities and obstacles in our hunt for justice, leadership, and security? In our passage this morning, Saul is presented as the first candidate among Israel's uh, kingdom to provide these things for the nation. The consideration is given to the reader. Can he provide justice, leadership, and security to a people? And simply because I've always wanted to work this phrase into a sermon, uh, when Saul steps up, we get uh, an inauspicious beginning to his reign, all right? This uh, uh, doesn't seem, even in the first chapters, to be one that we would place the weight of leadership on. This morning, I want to look at four patterns that we see in Saul's introduction, four tests, as it were, of his ability to provide these things, justice, leadership, and security. And I want you to overlay these tests on your life and ask the question, the things that I look for, can they actually provide what I'm seeking for them to provide? Then based on these observations, I'll make three quick general categories of application for us. First, the first test that we see in this introduction to Saul is what we call, uh, what I'll call just the eye test. Does he look good or is he good? Does it look good or is it actually good? Look in your Bibles in the first couple of verses, the way this is introduced. We get a number of indications. In fact, the, the most consistent term throughout the chapter is that of a seer. It's visual language. We're going to go to the seer. He's going to see. He's going to point us uh, in the right direction based on what he sees. So we get a, a number of kind of eyeball tests of this one from the start. We're introduced to uh, language that's familiar in the Old Testament. Verse 1, there was a prominent man. There was a man. This is the way I think back to chapter 1, verse 1. This is the way the, the book started. There was a man, his name is Elma, and then we got the introduction. This is the way many of the Old Testament stories begin, and this there was a man introduction presents something of a transitional scene. We're getting ready to get a new chapter of what's happening. And how is this man and his family, particularly his son, introduced? The first five verses tell us a number of ways that this new man looks good to the eyes. He's of a prominent family. Some versions of your text there in verse 1 say he was from an elite family. They were the ones that were in positions of power and prominence, of a prominent man. If you're uh, reading your Old Testament, this language is actually, these uh, folks would have been married, and this language is familiar from the book of Ruth. This same language is applied to Boaz. He was a prominent man in the culture. So we have a, a prominent family, traced generations back, from an important tribe. He's a Benjamite, if you remember back to the story. This is the special last-born baby boy of Jacob. The, the special prized source of blessing. He's a young man, and this description is not merely chronological age. We're soon reporting in 1 Samuel 13 that he has a son old enough for battle here. 
But in this place, he's uh, positionally uh, equipped to lead. He's an elder. He, he's one that can step in both in his physical stature and his chronological age to lead the people. He's capable of war, inheritance, marriage, so on. And he's impressive. This is the point that the text continues to point our, our, our eyes to. In fact, there was no one more impressive. He stood a head taller than anyone else. This new start looks really good. Um, we're Saul on a reality TV show. Um, he is getting the immunity necklace or the rose at this point, right? Uh, he is the clear choice. If you are picking the characters, he's the one that can provide justice, security, and leadership. There's no doubt about it. But the question is, is Saul actually good? Now, we're doing something that's really unnatural in preaching sermons the way we are through these books. We're stopping in the middle of the story to comment. And you might imagine, like, um, uh, trying to stop three episodes into Stranger Things and explain what's going on, right? Uh, or, or uh, you know, one of those tear-jerking uh, shows that Sarah likes to watch when uh, I'm already asleep, right? You can't stop at episode three and comment on there. The story's developing, and it's meant to be read as a whole. So we're just getting kind of an introductory view into what's going to be further developed. We've seen that the motive behind them asking for a king isn't the best. But now we begin to be confronted with the person they select as their first king. And the question that's going to hover over the coming chapters is, will Saul's inner character match his outward appearance? And the answer we're going to see is no. One commentator, reflecting on this initial, uh, this, this initial paragraph, says Israel falls prey to a basic, common human misrepresentation of what makes one fit to lead. And what's he speaking of? They trust their eyes. They trust what their eyes can see. With Saul's introduction here, there's no mention of his character. There's nothing about his spiritual life. There's no reference to God or his relationship to God. It's merely outward appearance. And the people of Israel are going to want to do the same thing for their next king. We'll see sometime after Easter. They're going to want to pick the biggest and baddest once Saul fails. And Samuel's going to have to remind them at this point the lesson they should have learned from Saul. A passage that you are perhaps familiar with. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature. Because I've rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. Humans see what is visible. But the Lord looks at the heart. And friends, isn't this a basic formula for disaster in our lives as well? The propensity to trust what our eyes see and pursue what looks good on the surface as a basis for leadership, justice, and security. It's the root of Eve's sin in the garden. She saw that the fruit was delightful to the eyes. And she took and she ate. Perhaps a basic observation for us this morning is you simply cannot trust your eyes. They will deceive. And Saul's life will testify to this reality. Verses 3 and 4 provide the next step in the introduction to Saul's leadership. We'll read beginning in verse 3. One day, the donkeys of Saul's father, Kish, wandered off. And Kish said to Saul, Take one of your servants with you and go to look for the donkeys. 
Saul and his servant went through the hill country of Ephraim, through the region of Shalesh, and did not find them. But they went through the region of Shalem, nothing. They went through the Benjamite region, and they still did not find them. Honestly, this section of the story is like a big old nothing of a story. Some donkeys wander off. It would have been a, a, a big deal. I mean, this is, this is a prominent deal such that Kish is going to commission his son to go find the donkeys. But the refrain of the story is actually found in verse 4. Notice the repetition here. The repetition is, is nothing. They didn't find them. Again, verse 4, nothing. And then verse 4 continues and ends with, they still did not find them. The picture of this paragraph is of a prominent man who will soon be king and his servant wandering through the hill country looking for some dominance. The search is extensive, but it's futile. And so shall Saul's kingship be. The introduction of a man of such potential, aimlessly wandering, is a metaphor for what will follow from Saul's reign. He's a nameless wanderer, tossed to and fro by every whim, every interaction, every emotion. He's directionless. He aims for nothing, and he hits it consistently. You might imagine, how would you want to pick a military leader or political figure? You'd want to look at their lives and seek to discern if they have the patterns, even in small ways, that when extrapolated to leadership would make them fit for command. Here, the way Saul is introduced is one who is just meandering. For all his outward appeal, Saul shows up on the screen and he's presented as a man who can't find his parents in the morning. Saul couldn't find donkeys. How's he going to lead a nation? Meandering isn't the mark of a good leader, which is another helpful way to think about Israel's king and so too our objects that we look for, for justice, leadership, and security. Is the thing that I'm looking for to provide these actually moving in the right direction? When we attempt to find security, look for leadership, or pursue sources of justice in the world, it's worth asking, is the thing that I'm following moving in the right direction? Is it going somewhere? And to know if it's moving in the right direction, we have to ask about more than donkeys. We have to know how God defines right and see if the thing that we're trusting in is actually moving in God's direction. Thirdly, Saul seemingly fails the guidance test from the start. The question, is it, is he listening to the right people? Pick up where Teddy left off in verse 5. They got to the land, and Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come on, let's go back. My father will stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. Look, the servant said, there's a man of God in this city who is highly respected. Everything he says is sure to come true. Let's go there now. Maybe he'll tell us which way we should go. Suppose we do go, Saul said to the servant. What do we take them in? The food from our packs is gone, and there's no gift to take the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, Here, I have a little silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he will tell us which way we should go. Formerly in Israel, a man who was going to inquire of God would say, Come, let us go to the seer, for the prophet of today is called the seer. 
Good. Saul said to his servant. Verses 5 to 10 present what I think is the clearest picture of the definition of Saul's coming leadership. Notice the way he relates to other people in this passage. First in verse 5, he's pulled by the opinions of others. Let's go back, because my father is going to be concerned. He won't complete a task because he fears what other people might think. Then, the highly respected man, the prototypical leader, is described as subservient to the wisdom of a servant. He's taking counsel from the servant boy that he has with him. The servant tells him to go see a man of God. Saul, however, has excuses for not wanting to go. They don't have anything to offer the man. And his wisdom and guidance is, I'd rather go home than push through that. Again, it's the servant in verse 8 who musters the courage to tell his master, it'll be okay. Let's go. We'll figure it out. Finally, rather than being an agent of leadership or direction, Saul's leadership is mediated through someone else. A seer who will hear from God and dictate to Saul what he should do. Saul is introduced for us in chapter 9 as a puppet king, utterly dependent on God's guidance through other people. And as his leadership will continue to play out, listening to the wrong people for guidance consistently. The same pattern continues after Samuel tells Saul that he will be king in chapter 10. Look over in chapter 10, verse 5. So Saul uh, hears from God, says, this is the man, we're going to anoint Samuel. Verse 5, you'll come to Gibbeth, God, where the Philistine garrisons are. Interesting setup in the land here. When you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying. They will be preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you. You will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. When these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require, because God is with you. Afterward, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you, and I will show you what to do. I will come to you, and I will show you what to do. This is the classic mark that likely drives you crazy in your job. A new employee is hired who doesn't have the skills for the job, so you spend your time holding his or her hand. Managing their movements because they don't have what it takes to step into the position. You're not training them for the role, but you're having to hold their hand in the role. It's a bad managerial position, and it is a disaster for a king. A king who has to be led? What kind of king is that? Instead, you would want to read about a king who would listen to God for himself who would pursue wisdom from the source and do what is right, even if others did not approve. Now, I won't steal the thunder of future sermons because there's some thunder in these sermons. But these are the patterns of Saul's life. A fear of man. An inability to make decisions. A constant questioning and paralysis in the face of the opinions of others. An unwillingness to put himself out there and actually lead. He will be a king who will be bullied around by the whims of other people. The cascade of his own emotions 
and the never-ending complexity of actually not knowing what to do. He will be known as one who is uncertain about direction, hyper-concerned about others' perception, and unable to relate to God on his own volition. And in the same way, we have to look to the objects of our affection, both things and people, and consider, are they seeking the Lord for guidance? Who has their ear? What voices have the most sway over what they do and decide next? Are they themselves listening to God and responding in obedience? Are they merely pulled by what somebody else tells them is right in any given moment? We have our final test presented in verses 10 through 14. They head to the city, they're told that the seer is there, that the one that has wisdom and direction, he's going up to a high place to offer sacrifices. So they hurry along to, to see this one. Verse 14, Saul and the servant were entering the city. They saw Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, this time tomorrow I'll send you a young man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him as a ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the Philistines, because I have seen the affliction of my people, and their cry has come before me. This is meant to have overtones back to the Exodus story. Then Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man I told you about, he's going to govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the city gate and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I'm the seer, Samuel answered. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. Then I will send you off in the morning. I'll tell you everything that's in your heart. As the donkeys had wandered away for you three days ago, don't worry about them, because they'll be found. And who does all Israel desire but you and all your father's family? Saul responded, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? And isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of Benjamin? So why have you said something like this to me today? Verse 21 reveals another defining characteristic of Saul's leadership. He's going to be the reluctant king. The one who is unwilling, perhaps unable, to handle the weight of the people's expectations. Samuel the seer tells him that his quest is going to lead past a few donkeys and actually to a throne. And Samuel responds, verse 21, with a, who, me? A reluctance to take the weight of this leadership. Verse 20 is actually the culmination of Samuel's voice to Saul, and the rendering is just really unclear in most of our Bibles. Look back in, in verse 20. Uh, Who does all Israel desire but you and all your father's family? <coughs> Literally, this verse says, Whose is all the treasure of Israel? Does it not belong to you and your father's house? In other words, all the good of Israel is now given to you. Everything that's there is now yours. The people, the great promises of the Lord, the system of worship, the promised land, all the good is yours. And Saul replies, who me? Samuel reveals that to Saul that the Lord has made him king. It's interesting to note, look in verse 16. Samuel actually doesn't use the word king, and your Bible doesn't know how to render it super well. And so the middle, anoint him ruler. The actual translation, the actual word there is prince. 
Uh, anoint him as prince over the people. It's the first time this word's used in Israel's history, likely pointing to the transitional nature of this scene, but I think also an allusion to the fact that Saul will always be something of a wannabe king, never really arriving at full kingship. Rather than grabbing the leadership and taking the God-given responsibility to point God's people in the right direction, Saul seemingly plays hot potato with the kingship. And this isn't the first time this has happened among people that God has called. Think back to Moses. God says, I want you to go and call deliverance for my people. The difference is, Moses receives God's voice. He interacts with God directly in the presence of the burning bush. And then he moves into a place of leadership. Whereas Saul is going to be plagued by this reluctance throughout his reign. We see hints at the reluctance in the verses that follow. The odd way that Samuel and Saul interact as this passage ends. Verse 25. Afterward, after Samuel's told him these great things, they went down from the high place to the city, and Samuel spoke to Saul on the roof. Verse 27. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell your servant to go on ahead of us, but you stay back for a while. And I'll reveal the word of God to you. So the servant went on. There's, a, um, there's an odd back alley style to this interaction. Samuel's words are veiled. It's as if he's not even proud of what he's saying. He speaks on the roof. He talks on the outskirts of the city. And he'll only declare these words when he's sure that Saul's servant is out of earshot. Why would he do this? I mean, after all, God has already declared this one to be king. Shouldn't this be a moment that we publicly celebrate? Even later, Saul won't even celebrate. His uncle comes and asks him what the seer has said, and all he tells him at the end of uh, verse 16 is some stuff about the donkeys. He doesn't even acknowledge his own kingship. Delroth Davis commenting on this passage said, Samuel's need to proceed with secrecy may reflect his persistent sense that the monarchy is the wrong path for the people of God. Or it might actually be an expression of doubt as to whether this strapping young Benjamite is really the right man for the job. If nothing else, the pattern is established. Rather than leading from the front and pointing people forward, Saul will be a reluctant king who hangs on the margins in the shadows or the luggage, unwilling or unable to handle the weight that God and the people want to give him. Which leads to a final question for us and our sources of justice, security, and leadership. Can the thing that I'm looking for handle the weight that I want to give it? Whatever I'm looking for, for justice, leadership, and security, it better be able to handle the weight that I want to supply it, and if, in God's kindness, I learn that the things that I look for for those things can't handle the weight, then I would be foolish to continue to try to give them weight, because they simply can't handle it. Nonetheless, in verses 9 to 13 of chapter 10, God's Spirit comes upon Saul. Clearly, God is wanting them to learn these lessons, teach them over Saul's reign. Saul turned, I'm reading in verse 9, Saul turned to leave Samuel. God changed his heart. All the signs came about that day. 
Saul and his servant arrived at Gibba. A group of the prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came powerfully on him. And he prophesied along with him. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy among the prophets asked each other, What happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And then a man who was from there asked, Who is their father? As a result, is Saul also among the prophets? Became a popular saying. Saul finished prophesying and went to the high place. This passage begs the question that the saga of Saul's life is going to ask her answer. Is Saul among the prophets? Is he one of God's people? Is he speaking and leading on God's behalf? It's really funny that the historian that's recording this actually captures that. It, this becomes something of a slogan for Saul's reign. Is that guy one of them? This cryptic question that's asked on the outset hovers over, hangs over his leadership. Such that the final segment of Saul's life, we're going to see that it's actually a reverse script of this chapter. The spirit being taken from him. And this is the way this concludes. Saul then removed his clothes and prophesied before Samuel. That's got to be super awkward. He collapsed and lay naked all day and all night. And that is why they said, is Saul also among the prophets? Naked dude prophesying before Samuel, collapsing day and night, and the same cryptic question that's asked at the outset of his reign is still present at the culmination. The question, no. Here, the opening chapter of Saul's reign hints at the answer to the questions that his life lights are. He looks good, but it's unclear if he is actually good. He's a king who doesn't know which way he's going. He's a king who's pulled by the voices of others and doesn't listen to the Lord himself. And he's a king who's reluctant to take the weight of leadership that God gives him. Three quick categories of application for you to consider as we close. First application. The type of person that you are becoming. The type of person that you are becoming. Saul's failures hold up a mirror to our lives and force reflection for God's people. Are you the kind of person who merely looks good? Or are you pursuing the fruit of goodness? Are you on the path that God intends? Are you hearing direction from the Lord, listening to His voice and the voices of those that speak on His behalf? And are you embracing the responsibility that He gives you to represent him in this world. Your life likely testifies to some of the same negative patterns we see described in Saul's introduction. And by the Spirit of God, Saul's negative example can press us to repent of sin and pursue holiness. Second application, the type of leader you should follow. The type of leader you should follow. We could apply this to a myriad of subsets of groups in our church. If you're single and considering marriage this morning, notice the characteristics you want to see embodied in the person that you commit your life to. Someone that doesn't merely look good, but is good. Someone that knows the direction they're heading, heeds wisdom from the Lord, and steps in to embrace the responsibility that God gives them. If you're seeking a church, Look for pastors and church leaders who embody these traits as well, who pursue goodness, 
who point in the right direction, who listen to the right voices, and who embrace the responsibility they are given. And if you're giving your time and attention and affections to something, you best be asking, can it actually provide what I'm looking for it to provide? And then lastly, the type of God you can worship. The type of person you are becoming, the type of leader you should follow, and the type of God you can worship. What's sad about the story, even from the very beginning, is to consider what God said about their desire for king. You've rejected me. In the face of this request for a king, it's as if God is standing over on the side saying, Hey guys, what about me? What a, over here, why him and not, and not me? They have God. And friends, he passes all of his tests. Is he good? Or does he just look good? God doesn't merely do good things. He is the definition of good. Good is his inherent character. He can't stop being good. We have nothing to fear about finding out that God is a hollow shell of exterior that merely looks good but lacks substance to support our affections. He is sound, good. Is he moving in the right direction? Friends, God does not merely follow in the right direction. He sets the direction for all human history. He works all things together perfectly and accomplishes his good purposes. To follow God is to assure you be going in the right direction. Is he following the right guidance? No, but not for the wrong reason. He is the definition of what is right and true. He needs no counsel because he always knows what is right to do. To heed and submit to a good God is to always submit to one who knows the right way and follows the right guidance and can he handle the weight? You better believe it. He alone possesses the broad shoulders and outstretched arms that can support the weight of your desire for justice, leadership, and security. And if you doubt if he can handle the weight, consider what the good news of Jesus Christ tells us. That he is one who handled the full weight of human sin, such that the wrath of God was poured out on his son, so that you need not experience the wrath for your rebellion. He drank the cup, he satisfied fully in Christ the weight that your sin deserves. He has proven in his history of faithfulness, that he can handle whatever weight you want to give. So trust in him. You want justice, leadership, and security? So do we all. Make sure you're looking for the right source. Let's spend a couple minutes reflecting. Use this time to unburden yourself to God, to pray, to consider, to repent, and then we will stand to sin.
Father, we bow with an awareness of our brokenness, seen in our need for something outside of us to tell us what's right and wrong, to lead our lives, to give us security, to protect us from our enemies. We, we are vulnerable and we know it. And just like Israel, we are so prone uh, to grab secondary, flimsy sources for justice, security, and leadership in our lives. And you and your kindness continue to use your people, your word, your church to remind us of the far supreme worth putting our hope in you. Trusting that you are good, you know which way to go, your guidance is right, and you can handle the weight of our affections. And nothing else in this world can do that. And so we need your help to train us to trust you. To train us to, to not trust our eyes. To not trust any people. Secondary gods of retirement accounts or family health. You know, those are prone to crumble. So would you by the power of your spirit, teach us that, that you are the only source of our hope. And we draw near to you for the very things that our heart needs most. So we think about the reality of what you've done for us in Christ. Uh, you remind us that you can be trusted, that you're good, and that you've got really broad shoulders to handle the weight. So that inform how we navigate our lives, where we look for hope and security. And as we sing and reflect conclusions, we share words of hope and encouragement with one another, would you get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you as the short and steady basis for our life? We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.